0: you'll join me again in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 7. I read this week that what we've been giving our attention to for the last several weeks and will continue to give attention to for weeks to come could be considered one of the greatest string of words ever penned in any language at any point in history. The more time we spend in these words the more we must tend to agree with that statement. Again, that's a reference to the third verse all the way down through the 14th verse. The gospel of Jesus Christ in these verses is told in superlative form. Everything that we need to know about salvation, redemption, the Father's plan, the Son's accomplishing, and the Spirit's application is here told us. As much as I'd like to go back and look at verses 1 through 6, we're going to press on and look at verses 7 and part of verse 8, perhaps. If you have your Bible open, let me read verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for redemption in Christ's blood. We're thankful that our sins have been forgiven. And this, according to the riches of your grace, which you have made known to us in all wisdom and prudence. We ask, Lord, that you would take these things concerning your Son, Jesus Christ, and our Savior and declare them to us by your Spirit. We ask it because we know that that is a work that you are pleased to do, to exalt your Son. So we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been to a museum or an art gallery or some other historical site. And you've passed through it in a few hours. Or maybe you even spent a whole day or a good portion of the day there and left thinking that you had really experienced all that was there. And then perhaps you heard someone speaking. You overheard a conversation. And that person or that group of people took several days or perhaps even a week To look, to read, to study the exhibits, to to look at the art. How did that make you feel? Or how do you suppose that would make you feel? Took you a few hours, maybe a day. Took someone else with greater interest. A lot longer time. My hope and goal is that we will not come away from these introductory verses of Ephesians feeling like that. First person may feel Just having glanced over them I don't know how many times I've read This first chapter of Ephesians In my Christian life Dozens upon dozens of times I'm sure the same for you But every Sentence seems to be so rich and Full every word In verse 7 is rich and Full and is, is full of meaning for Us so I don't want us to just Pass over it lightly so I know we're moving slowly But God willing, Lord helping us, we're being edified in that slow move. So if you found your place here in verse seven, before we get involved in verse seven, I want to point out one one last thing. I want to read verses one through six again, and I want you to count with me as we go through them. How many times the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned in some form? or another. So let's do that and then I'll tell you why. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So there's one. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And there's two. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's three, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's four. Just as he chose us in hymns, five, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. I believe we're at number six. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. I lost count here, but I know because I did this before, there's ten mentionings of Jesus in the first eight verses. I bring that to your attention just to bring out the point that the Holy Spirit, as he inspired Paul to write could not make enough of Jesus Christ. It's as if every other phrase of the sentence has something to do with who Jesus is or what he's done. He is the preeminent one. There's no way that we can read these opening sentences or paragraphs without seeing that the focus, from any angle you view it, is on Jesus Christ and what he has done. He's called Paul to be an apostle all the way down to verse 7. He has shed his own blood for his own people. In 2008, which seems like an eternity ago now, doesn't it? In 2008, Michael Horton wrote a book that was entitled Christless Christianity. Some of you may have that book. You may have even read that book. I have it, but I haven't read all of it. I went back this week and just read his introduction to this provocatively titled book, Christless Christianity. And in that introduction, he made two points, really, or at least I took away two points of interest. He said, first of all, that it is his assumption that the regular diet in many churches across America today is to be nothing more than this do more and try harder. Be a better Christian tomorrow than you were today. It's moralism. Do better. And some define these as the holy oughts. You ought to do this. You ought to do that. You ought not to do that. The second point that he makes in this book is really a, a one that causes us to examine ourselves individually and even ourselves as a church. He says, my argument in this book is not that evangelicalism is becoming theologically liberal, but that it is becoming theologically vacuous. What does he mean by that? Well, the cliche we so often use of being a mile wide and an inch deep is what he's referencing. Both of these points devalue Christ and his work. Jesus Christ Is Christianity. You cannot be a Christian and not know and glory in who He is. There is no such thing as Christless Christianity. Christianity is not foremost something that we do, it is foremost someone we know. Perhaps we could say it even better it is foremost who has known us. Christ has known us. Shallowness in worship, whether it's individual worship or corporate worship, stems from shallow or what Michael Horton would call vacuous theology. These verses that we've been studying in Ephesians 1 explodes all of that, doesn't it? We see in every every sentence, every line... We see something of the glory of who Jesus Christ is. The more we know of him, the more full and spontaneous our worship will be as we see Jesus Christ as being all in all. So if you're looking at, actually I want to begin today at the second half of verse 6 and work down through verse 7. We saw last week that Paul ended this first section about the Father's activity in our salvation, calling for the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then it seems like there is a a summary statement of all that proceeds that ends the sixth verse when he says, by which, and that's a reference to his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. Think about what Paul says there in just a few words. The Father has made us accepted in his sight in the beloved. He has bestowed grace upon us. Perhaps that's the translation in your Bible, or at least you have a notation there of those words, made us accepted. It's interesting here, isn't it, that Paul doesn't say By which he made us accepted in Jesus Christ. That would be true. And we could glory in that fact. But he uses another word altogether. He uses the word translated in English as beloved. Jesus Christ is the beloved of the father. We talked about one of those instances where that is made known this morning in our in our first hour study of the Trinity at Christ's baptism. And again, at Christ's transfiguration, the voice from heaven thundered and said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And it's of note here that Jesus Christ is the beloved of God for his own sake. There is nothing that we add to Christ that makes him the beloved of God. He has eternally always been the beloved of God. He is the Prince of Heaven. Every eye looks to him. And in amazement, the angels peer into this work of his of redemption it puzzles them as they see the high and exalted Christ leave his throne and glory and enter in to his own creation this term that paul uses the beloved stresses the nature of the relationship of the father and the son such unity such love such devotion yet the father did not spare his beloved He sent him on this work of redemption. And this is really an amazing statement by Jesus in John 17. Several months ago, we worked our way through that entire chapter of John 17. But let me remind you of one verse, verse 23. Jesus says, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me. And. That you have loved them as you have loved me. Now, the people that Jesus is referencing here, if you back up into the beginning of John 17, is this group of people that was the Father's, that the Father gave to the Son. And Jesus, here at the end of this high priestly prayer of His, He is saying and He is making known, making known to us, that the Father has loved us just as the Father has loved Him. The voice from heaven thunders over the baptism and transfiguration of Jesus. This is my beloved son. With all reverence, we can say that the voice, though we don't hear it audibly from heaven, is thundering over the people of God. These are my beloved children. I have adopted them into my family. That's what we looked at last week. We have been predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So when we read the latter part of this sixth verse, we have been made accepted in the beloved. Accepted before the father. That is the only way that you or I or anyone will ever be accepted before the holiness of God is to be found united by faith to his beloved son. That is why everything in Christianity revolves around Jesus Christ. That's why in in these first seven or eight verses, Paul could not mention the name of Jesus often enough. Everything is concerning Jesus. Everything points to him. Everything builds off of him. The blood that was shed was Jesus' blood. And here we stand as the beneficiaries of having been made, accepted. And the beloved. At God's initiation. At the good pleasure of his will. According to the glory of his grace. He took this people of which you and I. If we are by faith united to Christ. Are in this number. And he has made us accepted in Christ. And again that verse out of John 17. He has loved us just as he has loved Christ. That's the degree to which Christ ushers us into the presence of the Father. We don't have to crawl in on our belly. That's not what the writer, that's not the picture the writer of Hebrew paints for us. Far to the contrary, he says, with all boldness we may enter in. To, and I'm paraphrasing, the very throne room of God. To find grace and help in a time of need. Why is that so? Because our Father in Heaven has made us accepted in the Beloved. When He sees us as His people, we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Having been covered by the blood of Christ. This is the glory of grace. The glory of grace. Now we can get into verse seven and what I'm going to call the glory of redemption. Notice how Paul begins this thought again. The last word of verse six was a reference to Jesus. The first words of verse seven, again, a reference to Jesus. We've been made accepted in the beloved. How? How has this happened? Has God just overlooked our sin? Has he just winked at our sin? Shoved it under the rug? It's not what he has done. Verse 7 says, in him, in Jesus Christ alone. And here we, we should not, dare not shy away from the narrowness of the gospel. Jesus Christ is not one of the ways that people find redemption and acceptance before the Father. Jesus Christ is the only way. And that by his own admission, right? I am the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Paul reiterates that fact when he says it is in him we have redemption. Through his blood. So what I want to do with this verse. Is to look at it really in two different parts. I want to look at. Redemption itself. The doctrine of redemption. And then the price. Of our redemption. Paul has already told us. That we are not a self redeemed people. We are redeemed in Christ. And in Christ alone. The word redemption. Standing alone by itself, if we were to define it, means to purchase at a price, to ransom, to buy something back, something that has been taken, concealed, imprisoned, whatever word you want to use. Something that is being held by someone else, a higher authority, a higher power. The word redeemed or ransom is the price that is paid to resecure that property into yourself. I like what I like this definition. The conception of redemption is the delivering or the setting free of a man or woman from a situation which he himself was powerless to liberate himself from or from a penalty which he could not have ever paid on his own. So what does redemption necessitate? What is the doctrine of redemption imply that the price of the ransom of which Jesus said of himself I will give my life as a ransom for many redemption implies the necessity of a payment that is of worth enough to buy back a people that have fallen into sin and have now found themselves Under a captivity of which they cannot break themselves free. They cannot loose themselves from the cords that bind them. Because one stronger than they has locked the lock and thrown away the key. Being Satan himself. That's what Paul would say later in the second chapter. When he would say that in those first opening verses of the second chapter that we once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Redemption necessitates or implies The need of something of such worth and something of such high value in the sight of God, not in the sight of man, being paid as a ransom price to buy back a people that had fallen into sin and could do nothing absolutely about the condition that they found themselves in. Mankind cannot save himself. Though there are countless of false religions that would teach to the contrary. And they would say exactly what Michael Horton said there in one of the first points of his introduction to his book. Do more, try harder. That's all you need to do. And in the end, if you do more and you try harder day after day after day, you are stacking up for yourself acceptance before God in good deeds. How often do conversations run like this when we speak to those about why they have the hope of eternal life? It is by far the most common answer given to that question. My good deeds outweigh my bad or some version of that. I'm a good person. I'm moralistic. I do more good things than I do bad things. It's not Christianity, obviously. Christianity is Christ coming in the place of ruined sinners and redeeming them through his blood to his holy and our holy father in heaven. Redemption presupposes captivity. We just sing it. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light. This is also what Paul would write to the Romans in Romans chapter 6. He speaks there of being enslaved to sin. Being under the tyranny and the power and the bondage of sin. Being under the power of a higher authority and having no ability at all to do anything about it. This is what the word redemption brings to the table. This is what necessitates the sacrifice of Christ. Notice that it says here in verse seven, we have redemption through his blood. God is all powerful, is he not? He is. God is all wise, is he not? He is. Could he not have redeemed us by the might of his power? Didn't he, after all, speak everything into existence and and that out of nothing? There was nothing, and God said, let there be, and there was. That's the power and the display of God still on display today. The heavens are declaring this glory of God. He created according to his wisdom, but he did not redeem us according to his wisdom power alone he did not redeem us according to his wisdom alone he redeemed us by the blood of jesus christ and if this is all we had of the gospel it would be enough because this presupposes that at some point in time christ entered into his own creation and took up a physical body And through the veins in that body was coursing his own life blood. And it is this blood that was shed by Jesus Christ. God the Father sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bleed. When we read of Christ shedding his blood, it's a reference, it's figurative language for Christ giving his life as a sacrifice to God. It's the fulfillment of everything that we read in the Old Testament. The type, the Old Testament, the types and shadows of the sacrificial system. Can you imagine how bloody worship was under the old covenant? The rivers of blood that would run off of the altar. The priests being themselves covered in blood after shedding the blood of animal after animal after animal. And here we find the reference to blood again. This time it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And we see the high price that was paid for our redemption. We are not those who shy away from a bloody theology. There are some that do. There are some that say with cringed face, don't talk to me about blood. Don't talk to me about the necessity of the shedding of blood. God is full of of grace. God is, is love. And He is those things, but He's also just. And He's also full of vengeance and wrath. And that wrath must be appeased. It must be propitiated. So we are not those who shy away from this speech of Christ. Shedding his blood. I want to read a string of verses to you. That reiterate this fact. Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1. He says know this. That you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. From your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers. But you were redeemed. With the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So this blood is not Paul's idea only. It runs throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, the shedding of blood. The writer of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And there in context, he's talking about the shedding of Christ's blood. Without it, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says in verse 20 of chapter six, you were bought at a price. What is implied there by the context is the price is the shedding of Christ's blood, the giving of his own life Therefore, he says, glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. He wrote to Titus concerning Jesus Christ that he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The writer to the Hebrews chapter nine Verses 12 through 14, it is not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood that Christ entered the most holy place once for all. Having obtained eternal redemption, for if it was the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean that sanctifies and purifies the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? How much more shall this blood cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A little further in that same chapter. According to the law. Almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And then perhaps the other place where this is seen the most clearly, and I would ask you to turn here with me, Romans chapter 3. And again, we're talking about redemption. The price of redemption. The incredibly high price. Of mankind's redemption. I want you to look with me at the 21st to the 24th verses of Romans 3. In the first three and a half chapters. Paul has condemned everyone under sin. Jew, Gentile alike. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's verse 10. You get down to verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. And this was witnessed by the law and prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why redemption is necessary. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Strain at the target as hard as you can. You'll miss it. And you will fall short of the glory of God. God has provided what every man needs for salvation. And what no man possesses or can create on his own. And that is righteousness. We go on with that verse. We're beginning in verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth. The word set forth here is is a public display. And where was Christ publicly set forth or displayed but at the cross of Calvary? God set him forth as a propitiation. Some of your translations probably say an atoning sacrifice. By his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross and shed his blood? Because God is just. Amen. Our sin, if this does anything, it has to heighten our perception of God's view of sin. If redemption had to come at this high price, Then sin before God. Is a big deal. Without the shedding of Christ's blood. There is no redemption. He publicly displayed Christ on the cross of Calvary. As a propitiation. Don't miss that word we don't need to update the language of that word we need to understand what it means God's wrath taken away propitiated how so only by the shedding of Christ's blood and giving his life There is a secondary connotation to the word propitiation, and it contains this this act of expiation, the removal of our sins. And that's where we're going in verse seven, back in Ephesians one here in just a moment. But the wrath of God pacified. And the guilt of the sinner removed. That's the glory of this word propitiation. Christ propitiated the wrath of God. He quieted the wrath of God towards me and toward you. We are no longer objects of the wrath of God. Now in Christ, we are objects of his mercy. Our guilt has been removed. How far? Well, Psalm 103 tells us as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our sins from us. And then this glorious piece of information and he remembers them no more. God is so unlike us in every way, but especially in this way. When he forgives, he forgets. I can't do that. My mind isn't made that way. I can forgive you, but I can't forget the offense. Forgiveness to me is a willful choice, and for you it's a willful choice. I am forgiving you. The glory of God, the heart of God, the love of God, when he forgives in the story. And when he defines for us what love is in 1 Corinthians 13, keeping no record of wrongs. That's a definition, not just of what we're called to, but of the very love that is found in the heart of God. So go back with me to Ephesians 1, verse 7. We could go on and on citing verses that speak of Christ shedding his blood for us. But we need to realize that redemption came at the highest possible price. Which was signified by Christ's brutal. There's no other word to describe his death but brutal. Crucifixion was the most feared form of capital punishment known to man. This is the high price of our redemption. It's not just the shedding of Christ's blood. It was the father bruising and crushing his son. Remember, this is his beloved. This is he in whom he is well pleased. This is the prince of heaven. The very image or icon of the father. And it pleased him. To crush him. Under the weight of Calvary. Isn't that amazing? It's astounding. This is the high price of our redemption but it gets even more glorious than that. Our redemption cost Christ everything. But it costs you nothing. Our redemption cost Christ all. But you can come and buy without money, according to Isaiah chapter 55. To us, there is no expense. We stand by as those looking on as we read the Gospels of all that Christ endured. And the details in those chapters of the Gospel, the details are gory. But they're true. That is what Christ endured. For our redemption. And it is the only possible thing. That would have assuaged or propitiated the wrath of a holy God. So Paul very plainly. Says in just a few words what I've been trying to say. In him we have redemption through his blood. We have been purchased back. We fell in Adam headlong into sin. And we actually committed sins ourselves. We're guilty on two counts really. Inherited from Adam and sins committed. We were enslaved to someone with a higher power and authority over us. Aren't you thankful there is someone who has come stronger than the strong man that has bound him? And let the captives go free. And even now he is leading that train of captives to glory. He is taking many sons with him to glory. This is the scandal. This is the stumbling block of the gospel. Cost Christ everything, cost me nothing. We're just like those who had conversation with Jesus in the gospels. What can I do to work the works of God? What can I do to, to add things up on, on the positive side of my ledger so that when the day of reckoning comes, there's more good than bad? The answer to that is nothing. Nothing at all. How did Jesus answer the question, this is the work of God, to believe on him whom he has sent? That's the only work, if we can even call it that. In him we have redemption through his blood. Notice the second part, or the second phrase, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption always comes at a price, namely Christ's blood, and is a necessary prerequisite to forgiveness. The ordering here is important. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And by virtue of the blood of Christ being shed, the ransom being paid, then by faith in him we can have our sins forgiven. Our sins removed. Our sins taken away. And notice. What all of this is according to. According to the riches. Of his grace. Which he made made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. This is one of the themes of the book of Ephesians, it's going to come up over and over again. Really this word, riches. Several times throughout the course of this book, Paul uses this phrase to qualify the grace that he is detailing or some different aspect of grace. It is according to the riches of his grace. God has all grace and saints for millennia have been drawing out of that pool of grace and it has not been diminished by a drop because it is the riches of His grace. He has all of it and He has displayed it in the most glorious manner in his beloved. Redeeming us unto God through the shedding of his blood. He says in the eighth verse, he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Notice the word that corresponds with riches, the word abound. Isn't that just like God? God doesn't halfway give us anything. Our cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. This is the way God has dealt with us. This is the way God has has loved us. Is it any wonder why in contemplating these things, Paul began in the third verse, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be him. Speak well of him. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We saying a moment ago, what gift of grace is Jesus, my redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. God has given all already. We're not waiting on another dispensation of his grace. We have been given it all. There is no person, no work, especially no blood that is higher than that that has already been shed. What is our response to all of this? Well, to do what Paul has called us to do several times over, to bless God, to praise him, to give Him thanks, we've been redeemed. You know, we sing the old hymn, "Redeemed." How I love to proclaim it, "Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb." That's the only way redemption comes. It's the only way it has ever come and the only way it will ever come. Thank God for it. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the redemption that is ours. In Jesus Christ, you spared no cost. You spared your beloved no pain, no suffering. And here we sit this morning as those that have come to the fountain of Jesus Christ and been washed. For we know there is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Lord, I pray this morning in grace and mercy that you would plunge more people there. That you would open the understanding. That you would enlighten the eyes. That you would give ears to hear. This message of the gospel. Of coming to Christ without money, with nothing in our hands, and receiving from him by faith all the riches of God. We're thankful to have such a Savior. We're thankful to have one that came so willingly and endured so much. Help us to do exactly what you've called us to do here in the scriptures, and that is to praise him. To the praise of the glory of his grace, we are thankful that you, our Father, have made us accepted in your sight, in your own beloved Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.